Good evening, everyone. welcome you to the fourth of our Lent lectures. Um, we're privileged to have Martin Cooper with us, who is known to some. And uh, I'm not going to do much by way of introduction because he's going to talk a little bit, a bit about his quite exciting career to date uh, as an introduction to his talk. Uh, suffice it to say that um, he's going to be talking about um, how we lead Christian lives uh, as we begin to just get a little bit older. <laughs> and and uh, so what we'll do is we'll start with a prayer. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are free to come together to talk about the things that relate to Jesus and to you. We thank you for bringing Martin safely to us this evening. And we pray that you will bless us through his talk tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, good evening. And um, many thanks indeed for the invitation to come and uh, join you for and participate in this series of Lent lectures. Um, I confess to being somewhat overawed when I saw the list of speakers that you had uh, lined up for these, and to be, uh, to be in the same list as a bishop and a broadcaster and uh, one or two academics, I felt slightly overawed, I must say. That was my initial impression, but here I am, and uh, for your sins, you have invited me, and I trust that I'll make a contribution that will fit in with, uh, with what you've already heard. But it is a great delight to be with you. I confess that Finch Hampstead was not on the radar of my sat-nav uh, for, <laughs> for many, many years, um, until relatively recently. Um, whoops, let's go back here for a minute. Uh, in fact, we'll close that out just for a second. Um, but, I, but it certainly is now, and this is, I think, the third, the third or fourth visit, four visits within a month that I'll be making to Finch Hampstead, including another one on Saturday, so I'll back here on Saturday again, uh, having not known almost where Finch Hampstead was until about a few months ago. So it's, uh, it's a great delight to be here. Um, and it was particularly when, when uh, my colleagues working with the navigators that I worked with, Neil and Emmy Bixton, and Emmy is here tonight, when they uh, uh, took on leadership responsibility with the navigators, that's what made this the centre of the world as far as uh, the southern navigators were, were concerned. Um, I'm indebted to uh, Julie, your rector, for um, preparing the ground a little bit for me on tonight's theme. For if you have read her um, February parish newsletter, and I'm sure you've not only read it, but marked it and it, but just in case your memory might be failing you, at this particular point, let me remind you as to what she said. All right, she said this. She said, um, we hear so much in the news about the fact that it's a young person's world and that in career terms, people are on a scrap heap by the age of 50. <laughs> but whatever the world may think in Christian terms, those who are in their latter years of life are by no means redundant. This is because they are reaching the most mature point in their faith when their lives should show forth the huge difference that Christianity makes. 
And she goes on to say this, maturity for a Christian is not something to be feared, but to be welcomed and to be seen as the best time in one's life when one's witness to one's faith in the kind of life and lifestyle one leads can be so inspiring to others. Well, thank you so much, Julie. I couldn't have uh, set this up any better myself. I think I appreciate it greatly. Um, and this is the title that I've chosen for tonight. All right, the, the uh, now famous words of uh, Magnus Magnuson on Mastermind, I've started, so I'll finish. As a way in, really, to thinking about life as a Christian through middle age and beyond. And I thought it might be helpful, first of all, just to put this in a personal context. I don't know about the exciting life that I've lived up to this point, John, as you've so uh, vividly described it. But I have worked now full-time with a Christian organisation called The Navigators, which some of you may know a little about, many of you will not. I won't tell you a lot about it, but I've worked now for that organisation, Mission Agency, for over 35 years, full-time. We serve in over 100 countries around the world and have a staff of about 4,500 that are ministering in evangelism, discipleship, small group uh, work of all sorts. We don't put on major events very often, although there is a conference coming up, which you might even hear a little bit about before the end of uh, the evening. Um, and in those 35 years, I worked... Oops, that's my water nearly gone. Um, I worked for 10 years in student ministry, and then 10 years in church-related ministry. Then I served 10 years in national leadership as national director of the work here in the UK, and stepped down from all of that in about 2005, 2006. And then thought, what do I do now? Once you, when you've had sort of the top job, you basically <coughs> normally need to leave uh, or go to the back benches or something. Um, I, my wife and I sought the Lord as to what that he might have for us to do. And the thing that he led us very clearly into was a new ministry initiative um, which we have called Second Half Living. Uh, we weren't expecting to get into this ministry, but he very clearly led us into this particular initiative. It's a ministry at this moment to folk who are in life's third age. And as it says underneath, for those aged 50 to 70, but the ish is important, all right? <laughs> 50 to 70-ish. So if you're here this evening thinking, well, I'm only in my... 40s or whatever, or I'm here in my 80s, don't worry about that, okay? The issue is important. But if you go on the web, on, 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 the, on the internet, and try and discover, um, thank you, just try and discover sort of the outer limits of, of third age, it's somewhere between 45 and 75. So we've narrowed that down a little bit, and we're talking about uh, 50 to 70-ish. And really the ministry is based on a series of workshops, discipleship workshops, which we present in local churches. They're quite interactive. We get people to talk a lot of it about their own situations. A series of four workshops, usually preceded by a taster workshop. So I've just come back from Northern Ireland where I was there for a couple of days presenting the workshops, or two of them, and I'm going back there later in the year. 
last week and this week and next week, I should say, we're in Poole in Dorset doing exactly the same thing, putting on this series of workshops. If you would like to know a little bit more about those workshops, then there is an information sheet which I'll leave a, a pile of on the front table. You can come and collect one of those afterwards, but I'm not here in a way to advertise that. It's, it's just that some of you may be interested and be asking. However, you may be sitting there thinking, am, am I, have I reached the third age? Uh, you know, am, am I there yet? Um, I'm not sure that I am. Uh, I, I may be, but I'm not quite positive. Well, here are a series of tests, all right, you can give yourself as to whether you've reached the third age. Here's the first one. <laughs> now, before you reach third age, it's not that your back doesn't hurt, but it might do, it might not, it might do occasionally. But once you reach third age, you have a hurting back, okay? That's you, you've probably reached third age. You can probably spell. Whereas if, you, if you've not reached third age, you may well not be able to spell at all, if my children and my grandchildren are anything to go by. You try to get electrical gadgets, mend it. <laughs> my kids now have no concept whatsoever of getting anything mended. You know, if it breaks, you throw it out and buy a new one. But second age, third ages, we try and get it mended. We might try ourselves first, or we may try and go somewhere else. Alright, now this next one's a bit embarrassing. You save the free little sugar packets. <laughs> if that's you, you probably are on the verge of one bridge third age, okay? And were we to have coffee halfway through this evening, rather than we had it at the beginning, it's amazing how many people halfway through the evening go into their handbags, go into their pockets, and out they come <laughs> to sweeten their drinks. You always pack a sweater when you go on holiday. Your kids don't, but you do, no matter where you're going, because it's a bit chilly. You start saying things like, whoops a daisy, and when you take a tea, sip of tea, ooh, that hits the spot. <laughs> it's very third age language, alright? So just be warned, be careful. And then the last one for the men, alright? You try to straighten out the wrinkles in your socks and then discover you aren't wearing Okay, so that's got us orientated as to whether, we're, uh, whether we may be approaching or have reached uh, third age or not. There's a great sense of accomplishment, isn't there, in finishing something well. We all know the joy of a task completed. Now, if you're like me, probably your home and your life is actually full of a number of uncompleted tasks. Your house is full of incomplete jobs. Mine is, I know that. But there's a great sense of satisfaction if we actually get to the finish point and accomplish something. And that's equally true when we see accomplishment in the lives of, somebody, of others. When we see another task completed or a goal achieved. All of us, I'm sure, or many of us, have had the joy, perhaps, of going to see a child or a grandchild participate in school sports day. And just to see the elation and the excitement on their face and in their life as they finish well, whether they win or not, 
not necessarily the issue. But the fact that they've finished the race that they've started out, there's a great sense of joy at that. Or it may be a little later in life, again with children or, grand or um, grandchildren or nieces or nephews. You know, when those exam results come through and you can, you can hold the papers or throw the papers up in the air, done it, completed the course, passed the test. Great sense of, of, of joyful accomplishment. Or maybe in the sporting arena, wouldn't, wouldn't, we all, wouldn't, wouldn't we all thrill if this coming August, so Chris Hoy again, you know, was first across that line in the Olympic uh, velodrome, as he was a few years ago. We, we all enter into that nationally. And well, one of my favorite images is this one from the 2004 Olympics of Kelly Holmes, the double gold medalist there. Now, why is that my favorite? Well, I'll tell you why it's one of my favorites. It's this, when Kelly Holmes runs, she runs the 800 meters. That's one of her prime events, 400 and 800. When she runs the 800 meters, she goes twice around the track. Now, if you, re if you run the 10,000 meters, you go 25 times around the track. And when you've gone 24 times round, you hear the bell. You're just about out on your legs, but you have to go that one last lap to finish. Kelly Holmes has only been round once, but when she gets to the end of that first lap, she hears the bell. She only has one lap left to go, but she has as far to run as she has already run. So for Kelly Holmes, the second half of her race is absolutely crucial to her finishing well. If she doesn't run that second half as well, if not better, than she's run the first half, then she will not finish well. Most sporting contests, in whatever arena, in whatever sport, most sporting contests are won or lost in the second half. And it's very much the same in life. In the book of Acts, we find the Apostle Paul in chapter 20 bidding farewell to the, the elders in Ephesus. In his own words, he is going to Jerusalem and he does not know what's awaiting him there. He does not know what will happen to him there. He does not know whether he will have life beyond going to Jerusalem. But he says to those Ephesian elders, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. Paul didn't want to rest on or rely on past successes, past accomplishments. He didn't want to look back and think of failures in the past and allow those to hinder him from running the race in the future. His eyes were only on the part of the race to come. And he wanted to make sure that he finished that race well and completed the task that God had given him. The American author, George Varner, who is a Christian researcher, says this, almost 11,000 people turn 50 in the USA every day, and most of them will not finish well. His observation, at least, and I have a feeling that he may well be making the observation more about the Christian community than the community at large. 
But his observation is that most folk will not finish well. By that, I don't think he necessarily means that they will reject the faith if they're Christians. But many of them will run out of steam. Many of them will begin to coast. Many of them will go downhill instead of keep going towards the table. Gordon MacDonald, another American writer, says this, it makes little difference how fast you run the 100 metres when the race is 400 metres long. Life is not a sprint, it's a distance run. And he goes on to say this, I'm disappointed by the number of Christians who've stopped thinking and hinge themselves to ideas that are dangerously out of date. They maintain the semblance of a spiritual life that was developed in the past, and which never evolved and deepened to match the realities of life. They slowly empty their spiritual tank of yesterday's zeal and vision, and now merely go through the motions of a fantasy faith that makes no sense in the real world. And the Bible is full of stories of men and women of faith who started well, but who didn't finish well. And I wonder as I say that, <clears throat> who comes to your mind? I'll tell you who comes to my mind. To my mind comes the priest of God serving in the temple in the Old Testament, Eli. Spoken about in 1 Samuel chapters 2 to 4. A distinguished life of service in the house of God for 40 years... And yet Eli ultimately did not finish well. He chose to overlook the sin of his sons. He chose to try and sideline it, to keep it out of the public eye. He chose to honour them, however, instead of honouring God. And God had to take away from him not only his priesthood, but actually his life too. Or later in that same book, King Saul, started so well as chosen one over the nation of Israel. The king of God's choice, anointed by the prophet Samuel, leading God's people with power and authority. And yet someone who reached the point where he began to compromise in his obedience to God. He became selective in the things that he would choose to obey, and choose to disobey. And God ultimately had to strip him of his kingship. And Samuel, who had anointed him as king, had to come back to him and say, Saul, God is going to take away from you the kingship that he granted you because you have not honoured him and kept his word. Started incredibly well but didn't finish well. Or over in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, core members of the Church of Jerusalem, the people of God, the expression of God's family there in Jerusalem in the first century, who when the time came for them to make their contribution to the communal distribution for the sake of others, it says they sold a piece of land and they brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet just like everybody else in the church did, so that they could share out commonly to those who were in need. But the difference was that Ananias and Sapphira, they carved a little bit out for themselves first. 
And then they brought the rest and laid it at the apostles' feet and said, this is it all. And God had to say to them, no it isn't. And because it isn't, you have chosen to go your own way and not my way. And your time as members of this church is up. And God took their life from them as well. They started incredibly well, but they finished very badly. Or what about, lastly, this little character, Demas? He's only mentioned in two or three verses in the New Testament, but this is what the New Testament says about him. When Paul writes his letter to Philemon, a little letter tucked away right at the end of our New Testament, this is what he writes at the end. (coughs) He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas and Luke my fellow workers. Demas was one of Paul's team. He was on the, in the apostolic band. He went about spreading the good news of Jesus with the rest of his, the rest of his team, the rest of Paul's team. But not a little while later, when Paul writes to Timothy, he says this, Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. A core member of the team, involved in the work of God, influencing the lives of people around him, (coughs) started so well, but didn't end well. The churches of our land are well populated with those in life's second half whose daily choices will determine whether they finish well or not so well. I know that in my own walk of discipleship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the choices that I make every day will go to determine whether I will finish well or not so well. I cannot rest on my laurels from the past. Not even the greatest successes I may have had were I even to identify them. Will I, will these folk who populate the pews and the chairs of our churches, as they move into and beyond second half living, will they choose to spend the majority of their time on the golf course? Or on the cruise liners? or in the garden, or with the grandchildren. Now, let me hasten to say, none of those things is illegitimate. (coughs) I have no problem with spending time in the garden, on the cruise liner, on the golf course, or with the grandchildren. Most certainly not. Some of you had a sneak preview at the beginning, and my desktop comes up with a picture of my grandchildren. I'm proud of all of them, and I love to spend time with them. But... If that is exclusively how I spend my time, at this stage of life and beyond, then I'm shortchanging God and I'm shortchanging myself. Will these same folk (coughs) choose to invest significantly in the lives of other people as well? In the wider community, including the Christian community, and seek to make their lives count for the Kingdom of God? If they will, If I will, 
if you will, then Gordon MacDonald has a few more words for you. Listen to this. The doctrine of God's grace, he says, is so great that you have every reason to believe that the second half of your life can be the greater of the two halves. Now I wonder how many of us sitting here tonight really believe that. Or do we say, no, it's time to hand over to the younger fellow. Our time has gone. We're on the downward slope. All we can do is look back. Gordon MacDonald would say, the scriptures would say, God would say, don't have a word of it. Don't think a word of it. The best may be yet to come. There's no reason why the second half of your life cannot be the greater of the two halves. So what will it take for us to finish well? I want to suggest that it will take an understanding of and an engagement with two things. First of all, an understanding of and an engagement with life's second half issues. I wonder who you think may have said this. <coughs> Sorry, secondly, I didn't realise that was there. Secondly, an understanding of an engagement with God's Word. Let's deal firstly with the first one. I wonder who you think this sounds like. If you preach the gospel in all aspects with the exception of the issues which deal specifically with your time, you are not preaching the gospel at all. Now I'm sure that whoever spoke those words was thinking more of the issues of the age than he was thinking of the issues of this age, of the age we've reached. Nevertheless, the principle and the point is the same. If you preach the gospel with the exception of the issues which deal specifically with your time, you're not preaching the gospel at all. You're not earthing it in reality. Who do you think might have said that? Who does that sound like to you? One or two guesses. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, may have been. Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King, possibly. John Wesley. John Wesley. Billy Graham. Billy Graham. No one's hit the jackpot yet, but you're, you're still trying. These are, these are quite frequent names. Someone, someone almost got it. It's 500 years old. Martin Luther, speaking in 1500 AD, said that it is critical in our proclamation of the good news of Jesus that we engage with the issues in people's lives. The issues of their time. The issues with their, of their lives. And that if we don't, we are not preaching the gospel at all. So what are the issues? And especially, what are the issues in second half living? I want to suggest that among others, there are these four pairs. And these are the ones that we seek to address primarily through our second half living workshops. The first is the issue of transition and loss. The second is the issue of anxiety and fear. The third is the issue of busyness and weariness. <coughs> and the fourth and the flip side are the twin issues of freedom and opportunity. Now, I'm not going to talk about those in any great detail tonight, save to say this. Let's just think about the first one for a minute. 
the issue of transition and loss. You don't need me to tell you that we live in an age of unparalleled change. Our world is changing. It is not only changing a lot, but it is changing fast. I have a book on my shelf at home that is simply called Margin. It has to do with the margins that we need to learn to operate with if we're to survive in life. And one of the reasons we need to is simply because the world is propelling us at a pace that few of us can continue to go at. And in the back of that book, he has a series of graphs. There are 30 in all. And nearly all of those graphs look like the four that I'm about to put on the screen. Now, I just pulled four of them out at random. There are 30 of them. And they nearly all look like this. And you and I are at the right-hand end of all of them. We're there. We're here. We're here. In other words, that in various areas, and I say I just trawled for the volume of junk mail, <laughs> motor vehicle travel, births to unmarried women, the population of the world, all of those graphs do this. And we're on the bit that's going like this, not the bit that's going like this. We're on the upward trend. The pace of change is significant. One of the other books that has been really helpful to me is actually a book written by a non-Christian uh, man by the name of William Bridges. And in his book he talks about this whole business of change. And I think some of the things that he says are very helpful for us and very significant for us. He distinguishes in the book which what in his terminology is the difference between change and transition. The book incidentally, and here it is, is simply called Transitions, Making Sense of Life's Changes. But in the book he says this, change is a shift in one's situation, promotion, redundancy, retirement, bereavement, moving house. Transition is the psychological process of disengagement from the old situation, going through the nowhere between the old and the new, and then embracing and identifying with the new. Now I don't know about you, but as, as I reflect on my life, particularly since I turned roughly 50, there's a lot of going through the nowhere between what was and what is to come in many areas of life. And whereas before we reach the third age of life, these things happen to us occasionally, albeit significantly, in second half living, they become more frequent and often simultaneous. Let me illustrate. There are issues related to retirement, which all of us approach negotiate and then need to quote recover from or move on from. There are issues related to elderly parents which many of us experience. We have elderly parents who need care for longer and in whose lives we are involved for longer than perhaps we ever expected to be. There are issues related to adult children 
my goodness. If I had a microphone, I could go around this room. <laughs> Adult children. You, know, you thought it was tough when they were teenagers, and eventually they fled the nest, and we waved them goodbye, and you thought, and now you're into this. Adult children issues. Lifestyle choices, relationship choices. And you're picking up the pieces. And maybe they're even coming back to home to live with you when you pick up the pieces. And then the grandchildren arrive. Possibly. For some of us at least. And we're suddenly juggling with elderly mother who lives 300 miles away in the north of England and adult children who are in Europe working and making lifestyle decisions that are turning their lives upside down. And I'm knocking that no matter how far down it is. <laughs> and then the grandchildren come. And we're juggling all of these things at the same time as we're actually losing some of our friends and coping with all of that. And maybe even losing some members of our family. We're starting to go to funerals now of our peers. Whereas up until the certain stage in life, we only went to funerals of the older generation. Or of a younger person who'd suffered an untimely death. But now, we start going to funerals regularly. And we're coping with our own sense of humanity, weakness, disability, frailty. Yeah, we are, even in our 50s. When I was 50, I was playing golf regularly, and I could have seen you perfectly well without having knees on. When I reached 60, I had to give up playing golf because my back hurt, and I couldn't play any longer, and I couldn't see either you or my notes if I hadn't got these on. These things begin when we hit the second half of life. Changes related to our financial situation. <clears throat> oh yes. And then changes related to church. Church isn't what it was. They're seeing all sorts of stuff we don't know and don't particularly like. And the vicar or the minister's not wearing the collar and tie anymore all the time. He's sometimes coming in in his shirt sleeves and, or whatever it happens to be. I don't know what it happens to be. But church is changing as well. <coughs> now the problem is that all of these things are happening simultaneously. Whereas in earlier life, changes happen, transitions needed to be negotiated, now they come like a series of waves onto the shore one after the other, and seemingly several together. And often, right in the middle of them, there's the killer wave. There's the life-changing wave. I don't know what it would be. I don't know what it has been for some of you. But I know for a fact that if you're in second half life, it will be there. The major change after which life is never the same again. This is the reality of second half living. And with many of these changes comes the reality of loss. Loss of employment, a career, 
loss of income, loss of faculty or capacity, loss of the family at home, the empty nest, and loss of friends and loved ones. Now that's the easy list to identify. They're tangible, they're external. We experience them. But there's a second list that's more insidious and very often more debilitating, particularly spiritually. Because with the loss of employment goes a loss of identity and influence. Oh, hello, I'm so-and-so. What do you do? Well, I used to be a teacher. I was a nurse. And in the very saying of it, something in, inside us, we struggle with. Because it's our whole sphere of identity and influence that's been undermined. With a change in our income situation, our own sense of personal security is challenged. With a loss of faculty or capacity comes a lack of confidence. It's not no longer easy to go out like I used to, to drive the car like I used to, to indulge in or engage in certain tasks like I used to. And that whole sense of confidence is shaken. <clears throat> if you've been a mum, a family mum rather than a career woman, when you reach that point that the final one flies the nest, <clears throat> your own sense of significance can fly with it. What, what do I do now? Oh, I'd love to tell you a story about our own situation and the situations of others related to that. And the loss of friends and loved ones, as well as other things on the list, can sap us of our motivation. You know, even getting up in the morning, wanting to do anything, we find it undermined. And all of these necessitate huge inner psychological transitions for us. There's a nowhere to be negotiated between the two somewheres if we're to really make progress and go on. And just quickly and secondly, what about the issue of anxiety and fear? Now I know this is significantly influenced temperamentally. If my wife was here with me tonight and was standing beside me, she would tell you very clearly that she has always been an anxious person, naturally. That's the way she's wired. But I have to tell you, I wasn't, and I'm not, in terms of the way I'm wired. But, since I've hit the second half of life, I've found myself being anxious about things that I never was before. I've found myself getting fearful about things that I never was before. There's something about reaching this age of life that increases the anxiety states and potentially increases the fear states for us. Carol Kent in her book called Taming Your Fears says this, fear is not the private domain of the weak. It strikes at the best of us. 
It doesn't restrict itself to the individual, but like a virus can be transmitted to others. And its most dangerous aspect, especially for the Christian, is its ability to slap handcuffs and shackles on life, to keep the believer who wears them bound up in a prison of frustration and hopelessness. In this prison, God can actually become the perceived enemy instead of the deliverer. The issues of life, we need to engage with, we need to understand them, and yes, we need to ask God's help and one another's help in negotiating. Okay, we've talked a little about life's second half issues, but we need to understand as well that this book has an enormous amount to say to us as we move into and through the second half of life. It is full of assurances, it's full of encouragements, it's full of exhortations, which can significantly help us as we move into and through the second half of our lives. And nowhere more than the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a wonderful letter, full of encouragements, full of promises, full of exhortations concerning life at any stage, but particularly life in the second half. Here's one that comes in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6 and verse 11, where the writer says, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. Now, he's been talking about those who have given their lives, not laid down their lives, but have spent their lives in selfless service of others who have given of their time, given of their energy to serve others in the work of God. And he says, don't rest on what you have done. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end. Keep on keeping on in order that you might finish well. Or perhaps one of the most well known to us in Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2. Let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now I want to suggest to you that gets harder the older you get. I find it gets harder to throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles and to keep on running that race with perseverance. Because everything within me screams, I want to slow down, I want to quit, I want to let others do it. The New Testament says, don't do that. Now, doesn't mean we have to go at the same pace we've gone through all of our lives up to that point. But to keep on keeping on. I was talking to a guy on Saturday on the telephone. He's 65 years old, not long retired. And he made one of those statements to me that you often hear folk who are older mate. Well, I'm whatever age, I'm 65 now, he said, and I'm beginning to come a little bit grumpy. And he said, but I don't think anything is going to change me now. New Testament says that a straw, everything that hinders us and that sin that so easily entangles. We're not allowed to say, I'm now whatever age I am and I'm not going to change. God says, why not? I might want you to. I might want you to not be grumpy. There's only one thing worse than a grumpy old man or a woman. It's a grumpy old Christian one. 
And unfortunately, there are many of them in our churches. God says, you can still change. There's still things you can throw off. I can help you. Especially if, as the next verse goes on, we'll fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. One of the great realities for us as we negotiate this stage of life is becoming increasingly weary. Now, physical weariness is one thing. But spiritual weariness, this scripture says to us, will often lose to loss of heart. And my friends, we dare not allow that to happen. We have an obligation to ourselves, to one another, but primarily to God, not to allow that to happen. To not grow weary, and certainly not lose heart. And then a reminder also in this book that this is not an individual exercise. This is a team effort. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now one thing is sure for every single one of us, the day is approaching nearer and nearer and nearer. Sooner and sooner and sooner. And the scripture says, the nearer it gets, the more you will need one another to keep on keeping on. So don't give up meeting together. Not only in church on a Sunday, but in all sorts of other ways as well. Our life changer, six years ago, was when our son came on the telephone one day and told us that his marriage was over. Two young children just about took all of the wind out of our sails in the course of one telephone call. Life changed completely for the whole family as a result of that. There was a couple in our church who were very close to us and we decided immediately to share it with them, not with others, but with them. They said to us as we sat and talked in their lounge that morning, as we shared our hearts, as we poured our hearts out and cried in front of one another, they said this. They said, whatever it takes, we want to walk with you through this whole experience. We want you to know that we are there for you whenever and however you need us. Wow. I tell you, that's this in practice. That's this. <coughs> Not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another and spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. Because, the husband said, we can't afford to lose you to the gospel. See, he knew, they knew, that this whole episode in our lives had the potential to distract us and to disqualify us and to knock us out of the race. And they were going to do all they could by the grace of God to help us not allow that to happen 
I tell you, that ministered to us incredibly deeply. And we need it if we're going to keep on keeping on. And then lastly, we, we mentioned the first part earlier. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end. We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's verse 12. To imitate those, not to become lazy, to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. See, it goes back to what I said earlier. We have choices to make. As someone has wonderfully put it, we can choose. We can whine or recline or decline or shine as we get older. That's the choice we have. We can become lazy if we want to. We can close the world in. Throw the shadows up. Or we can go on imitating those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And the chapter that I think in the book of Hebrews exemplifies, demonstrates that more than any other is that wonderful chapter 11. The portrait gallery of the book of Hebrews where all of the characters or many of the characters that form biblical history are listed. And in the first 12 verses, these are the characters that are mentioned. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob. And their exploits of faith are listed. What is very interesting is that for them, and some that are mentioned after that, it is actually an event from towards the end of their life that God chooses to list. I find that very significant that in the very second half, even the latter years of their life, God made demands of them in terms of their faith, that their response caused him to glory over. Because it honoured him. And immediately after those 12 verses, we come to verse 13. All these people, it says, were still living by faith when they died. Now, I don't know about you, but I would love to have that on my tombstone. That somebody would want to write on my tombstone. He was still living by faith when he died. He didn't give up. He didn't run half the lap and then quit. He ran through that tape. And gave God the glory right to the very end. My friends, this is God's desire for us. That we'll go on and finish well. Here's a scripture that describes it so wonderfully. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. The exact antithesis of the grumpy old man and woman. You know, a life that's still vibrant and fresh and fruitful right to the very end. So as I close, the question that we're asking really this evening is this. What sort of legacy will we leave? And I'm not talking about the kind of legacy that's in the picture there. What sort of spiritual legacy 
We're probably all concerned about the first one as to whether we're leaving our worldly belongings to to the right people and in the right way. But what about the second question? What sort of a spiritual legacy will we leave? It's still possible in the second half of life to make our most significant contribution for the kingdom of God. We started here, Paul said, I consider my life worth nothing to me. Finally, I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. When he wrote to Timothy right at the very end of his life, he said this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. But I know that Paul would have been the first one to say, actually, it wasn't down to me. It was the work of God who says to his people in the Old Testament, listen to me, O house of Jacob. You whom I have upheld since you were conceived and have carried since your birth, even to your old age and grey hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. God does it. Yes, he asks for our cooperation. Yes, he says we must run the race with perseverance. But he says, as you do it, I'm going to come in. And I'm going to provide all the energy, all the grace, all the resources you need. In order that you might finish well. And the testimony of countless men and women down through history. Men and women of God. Is that this was their experience. Yes, even people like Job. Job probably comes to our mind as one of the men in the scriptures who suffered the greatest trials and testing. You know, the interesting thing is that Job suffered those in the first half of his life. But God turned his life right around. So much so that when you come to the end of the book of Job, this is what's written. The Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life, even more than in the beginning. May God give us the faith and the vision and the determination to see the second half of our lives as potentially the best years of our life and service to Him and for His kingdom. John, may I hand back over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. And <clears throat> I think you're willing to take some questions. If from, I, I can't imagine there will be no questions. If nobody else has got any, I always have a few up my sleeve. But, uh, as, as those of you who have been before, you know there's only one rule, and that is that you have to have the microphone so that those who need the loop system can, can hear what you're asking. So if you like to put your hands up, I'll bring the microphone round to you. I don't know whether it was the effect. Everybody looks very weary now. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I remember a long time ago when I was at school mm. that uh, um, boys from school went to see uh, a man called Doco Gray, who was a retired missionary, mm-hmm. and he ran Crusaders. And he was a very old man, absolutely brilliant. 
uh, and I still teach teenagers in Sunday school, mm. and I think I've got something to offer that younger teachers might not have. Sure. Um, because what really worries me with teenagers is that they'll hit things that they never learned about in Sunday school and get lost. Mm -hmm. So I'll try not to try to navigate for them a bit. Good, good comment. Yeah, and not, a, and not only in teaching children or teenagers. I think, I think the wisdom and experience that comes with Christian maturity and, uh, and, and older years has a huge value within the overall ministry of the Church of Jesus Christ. Can I ask you one then, Martin? While, you can. While, while I was uh, while everybody else is thinking mm. about what they might like to um, ask you, um, most of your presentation—this is not a criticism at mm. all—most of your presentation was was based on us as individuals, and mm. I, I wondered how you saw this, what you're encouraging us to do as individuals, how you would see that working out in a church. Mm -hmm. You know, what what can a church do to encourage the kind of attitudes in individuals that you've been talking about? I think primarily it comes from the culture that we create through our overall leadership and ministry. Um, I think it's worked out in a number of different contexts. It's worked out through our, um, our public ministry and our pastoral ministry. But I think we also need to have structures uh, in place within the church that enable it to be fostered in community. However we create that. So the idea that the church is primarily a place that we attend to listen to whatever, teaching, I think has its place but it's fundamentally flawed if that's, if that's the full story. There have to be contexts in the church where meaningfully we engage with one another in community and are able to work through these issues together in such a way that encourages us to move forward together. If that is that, yeah. Kind of it, thing you it, is 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 your experience of churches, and you obviously get around yeah. quite a bit. Is your experience of churches that they're generally good at that, they're bad at it, or that it just doesn't even raise itself as an issue? As somebody once said, "All generalisations are dangerous," <laughs> including, including this one. This one. <laughs> um, <coughs> There are good and bad examples. I, what, the one thing I think I would say is that I think churches are becoming ever more alert to this. So I think they, there is a willingness to adapt structures within churches, I would say now, that is increasing all the time and that there has not been in certain areas in the past. I think people are looking for opportunities to develop small group ministry, they're looking for um, opportunities to develop clustered ministries of different kinds where folk can be involved together in taking the thing forward and in growing together. So, I, I yeah, it, it is a mixed picture, but I do believe that the, there are many signs out there that are encouraging. Okay, thank you. Here we are, fun. <coughs> 
Thank you very much for that, Martin. It was very encouraging. Can I just tell you that I had a telephone call today uh, from somebody who was trying to sell me solar panels to go on the roof. Mm -hmm. And they said that, um, uh, you know, can they ask me a few questions and they'll tell me what they can do for me. Uh, so they asked me if I owned a house, and I said I did. And uh, then they said, are you between the ages of 45 and 75? And I said, no. He said, no. Which <laughs> 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 drove me up uh, uh, quite quickly and reminded me of my age. But both Audrey and I have gone through um, uh, problems over the last few years. You know, we both had cancer and you know, we, we can testify to the support we've got from the church here, and not only the church here, the churches and all the other parishes mm. around, mm. Uh, where we were prayed for, and that was a tremendous encouragement and <coughs> blessing to us. And I can tell you that as I went into the operating theatre, you know, I felt a bit like Paul. Um, you know, I don't really mind whether God takes me now or whether he doesn't. You know, his ideas are, are, are better than mine. And I felt really at peace and upheld by the prayers of the people around me. Um, when we came out, God was good to us. He uh, more or less cured us both from cancer. And the um, message that came to me was uh, from Ephesians, where it said... Um, God provided, um, planned good works for you to do yeah. before the world was created. Yeah. And I said to my wife, well, we've got to cheer up here. We, we've still got some more good works to do. <laughs> so it's a question of looking. Absolutely. It's a question of looking to see what good works you can do. Um, not that I'm a paragon of virtue, but <laughs> my wife will tell you that. <laughs> um, but... Uh, you know, there are things that you can't do and you have to acknowledge them. Absolutely. And um, you say, when, when sometimes they, they say, you know, we, we'd be grateful if you all helped to put the chairs away and the tables away and whatnot. Well, you know, that's really a little bit pressing my physical abilities sure. these days. Sure. But there are things that we can do. You know, I still read a house group for one thing and write in the magazine, you can do things like that. But I think the thing that I can commend to every Christian who's getting old is that you can pray for people. And we uh, find it just wonderful the number of people who come to us and ask us to pray for them. I usually say to them, well, you know, do pray for yourself. But that doesn't stop us from praying. And our list of people for whom we pray is going longer and longer as it goes. And I have for this uh, an example from my wonderful Christian aunt. And when we went to her funeral, uh, the church members of her church were saying, and who's going to pray for us now? Anyway, that's my experience anyway. I don't know whether it coincides mm -hmm. with what you're saying. Well, it certainly triggers a thought in my, in, in my mind, and it's this that but we didn't get on tonight, uh, as we do in our workshops, we didn't get on actually to talking about the freedom and opportunities that come. And many of those opportunities arise out of the trials and the difficulties and the losses. I have to say, I don't think that we would be in this ministry 
had God not taken us through that experience with our son and his marriage and the whole, the whole relationship issue there. In a sense, that triggered some thinking down this line that was part of the journey that God led us on to this point. And very often it is. The, the freedom and the opportunity are the flip side of the trial. The empty nest that is so difficult to negotiate at the time, for, particularly for many, or not only, actually not only the women, but, but for many who are parents, brings with it new freedoms and opportunities. Now there's a little, there is a nowhere to go through that, that William Bridges talks about. It doesn't happen immediately. There is a nowhere to travel. But that nowhere is between two somewheres. And there is another somewhere that it can be as rich as the somewhere that went before. Your illustration of you reminded me of a situation. Um, my father died of cancer when he was quite relatively young, 67 years old. He knew that he was dying. Uh, he'd had an operation a couple of years before, and then secondaries were discovered, and he knew that he was dying. A few weeks before he was ultimately taken into hospital and never recovered, he had a phone call at home. Oh, am I speaking to Mr. Cooper? Yes, that's where you are. Well, Mr. Cooper, I wondered, we're... we're um, and basically, it was like he was selling life assurance. The guy on the other end of the phone was selling life assurance. So he said to my father, would you be interested in taking out a life insurance policy? Now, two things he didn't know was, one, my father had worked in insurance all his life, and secondly, was dying of cancer. And, he, and my father said to me, he said, I don't actually think that there is uh, an insurance company on earth who would insure me at the moment, because you see, I, I know that I only have a little while to live, and uh, you know, insurance is of no value to me whatsoever. The man at the other end of the phone was incredibly apologetic, said, I'm really sorry to have bothered you, I would never have known. And my dad said, no, don't worry at all about that. He said, let me ask you a question. He said, have you taken out eternal insurance policy? Because <laughs> <laughs> see, when I was 18 years old, he said, I took out an eternal insurance policy, so he said, it doesn't bother me the situation I'm in at all, but I would be bothered if you didn't have one of those policies. <laughs> Flip the opportunity around. You know, it's the, the worst situation can be taken and used in terms of the service of the community. And we do. Oh, we're, we're okay. We don't want to let you go just yet. No, no, well, I'm, I'm not I, I say go. that. <coughs> We will let you go if there are no, no more <coughs> questions or comments, obviously. Well, it looks as though your remarkable presentation has kind of stunned people into... The opposite. Well, no, not at all, no. I think everybody's thinking about all the opportunities that they need to go out and grasp as a result of um, your inspiration. Um, in a moment, Martin, mm. I'd, I'd like to ask you to finish with prayer, but we have got one or two notices this <coughs> evening, and I'm going to ask Emmy if she'll just uh, speak about Hi there. Um, I work with um, Martin and Navigators, and we are putting on a day conference um, on the 28th of April. It's a Saturday from 10.30 till 4 um, to look at this whole issue of discipleship. So how do we kind of take 
the fact that we know we're a Christian and we love God and how do we work that out in our daily lives so that whatever our stage of life we do keep changing and we do keep growing and we do keep learning um, you would all be really welcome to come along and I, there's some flyers out there and I will hang around if anyone has any questions but the day will involve um, some talks at the beginning and the end and then an opportunity to have kind of seminars where you can actually talk through these kind of issues um, there'll be a seminar on second half living, a seminar on parenting, um, seminars for students, so to cover whole stages of life. So how do we keep learning at this particular place that we're in at the moment? So you're very welcome and to come along. And it's at the Baptist? It's at the Baptist Church here in Finch Hampstead, so it's nice and local and lovely lunch, and there'll be child care. <laughs> if you have grandchildren or children you want to bring with you. Thank you. And um, that's not the only exciting thing that's happening here within the next month or two. Tomorrow... There is the famous Churchyard Trust Tea Party in the Memorial Hall. And uh, Richard has told me uh, beforehand that this is the best tea party in the world. So, so you miss it at your own peril, really. It's 2.30 two till 4 uh, at the Memorial Hall. Next week we have two lectures. Uh, one on the Tuesday evening, which is going to be given by Martin Hughes, um, who is a member of the California congregation and is also lay chair of Sonning Deanery who's going to be asking the question is the Bible true and answering it um, from recent archaeological discoveries in which Martin is well qualified to talk and uh, he's going to be talking about the battle for ancient Israel so um, that will be quite different again but um, if you know Martin you'll know that you know, another Martin. All Martins are excellent lecturers, it turns out. <laughs> or at least these two. And then on Friday evening, Friday the 30th, John Snow is coming. Uh, if you've been here before, you'll know that there are uh, free tickets that are required for his lecture. Um, there are some tickets left, and they're on the table by the door as you, as you leave the um, parish centre on your way out. But please... Please take what you need, but if you suddenly discover that you're not able to use any tickets that you've taken, we'd be really grateful to have them back. So, Martin, would you mind mm. finishing um, the, this, this evening? Let me evening just say two things before I do pray. First of all, I'm so glad you didn't get the two Martins muddled up. <laughs> because if I had to speak on that subject, <laughs> I would have been somewhat at sea. <laughs> Second thing to say is that I've mentioned a couple of books as we've gone through this evening. I have a copy of each of those with me, Gordon MacDonald's book, A Resilient Life, uh, William Bridges' book, Transitions, and then one other that I alluded to, in fact I quoted from it, but I, um, I didn't mention it, it's called The Bible Speaks to Third and Fourth Ages. It's a series of daily readings uh, that I think are particularly relevant at this, at this stage of life. Um, I don't necessarily want to take those back home with me, so if you would like to come and Give me a few pounds for each of those. You can, you're very welcome to buy them from me and take them home. And don't forget these information sheets, if you would like them, about the second half living workshops. I'll leave those on the table in the front. So let me just put those there. And the books. And let's close in prayer, shall we? Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening for the reality of your word that you are someone who knew us in the womb before we were born 
You know us now. You engage with us and identify with us in all of the issues of life that we're wrestling with, that we're enjoying, that are part of the bundle of our life right now. And you will go on to, com to complete the work that you've begun in us. You will carry us on until that great day when we meet you face to face. Lord, for these things, for these realities, we ask that you would accept our praise and thanksgiving. But we ask too, Lord, that you would help us to see the encouragement and the responsibility that we have from your word. That by your grace we would be those who run with perseverance all of the race that you've set before us. So that we might indeed finish well and hear your voice say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your Lord. Father, may it be so, for our good, for your glory, for the benefit of many other people with whom we're in contact day by day and have opportunity to influence. We ask it all in the precious and worthy name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Martin, thank you so much for coming this evening, um, fitting us into a hectic schedule and a particularly busy day today. Um, we're really grateful and appreciate all the insights that you've shared with us, uh, which will give us lots to think about um, over the days ahead. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much.